0: Hey folks, welcome to Pivot Point. My name is Joseph DiBiase, and this is my podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to Pivot Point. Thank you for tuning in, as always. How's everybody doing? We're we're, we're changing gears again. A new season is upon us. Not a season of Pivot Point, but like the seasons. Here we are. We're heading straight into fall. We had to put the heat on today. (laughs) I'm like, what? It's actually cold here in LA. Crazy. So I did an interview today. I was interviewed on the podcast for Meredith Grundy and Joseph Bennett called... Are you waiting for permission? Now, a couple of weeks ago, I had interviewed them and it was published last week. And now they are returning the favor and interviewing me. And I got to tell you, you know, the question have you ever not given yourself permission for something? And uh, I tend to think that I do give myself permission. But then, upon further examination, I realized that there are things that I, I don't allow in my life, because well, we can call it permission, but it's mainly fear. And, um, and it kind of it, it arose from the conversation, very organically. And I was surprised by (laughs) the words that were coming out of my mouth. And um, so I'm just really grateful for that podcast. I don't know when that show is going to air. They'll let me know, and I will certainly let you know. It was one of those deep and meaningfuls. We really touched on some, some great places, some deep places. And um, I'm very grateful to Meredith Grundy and Joseph Bennett. Uh, You know, we've met each other just briefly by doing this, but I feel the simpatico, you know, the connection, and I hope we stay connected. They're great people. I highly recommend their podcast. Are you waiting for permission? Check it out. Okay, today on the show... I know last week I did not give a preview as to who the guest is going to be, and that was partly because I did some traveling by car and wasn't sure what was coming up next. But here's the guest. Today is singer, songwriter, producer Aaron Ruiz. That's right. I know those of you who know me, will know that Aaron is married to my daughter, Carla. But that is not why he's on the show today. I've watched Aaron really work his craft for 15 years, maybe? Maybe a little longer? I produced his first album with him and Andrew, called Aaron and Andrew. and. We talk about this on the podcast, but I just want to say that where he was then and where he is today is night and day difference. And it's because of the hard work, the perseverance, the dedication to curiosity. And so, you know what? Let me just play you something. That will tell you a little bit more about this guy. Hold on. Check this out.
1: I don't give a damn about who you think I am. I'm a bad ombre, my name is an IC. I'm a bad ombre, breaking vote with no ID. I'm a bad ombre, the girls call me Poppy. <laughs> I'm a bad ombre. Smoking out, but it doesn't mean that I'm addicted. An epidemic when the rap people are addicted. I paid a rent, but you still want to see me evicted. Love me, fuck me, toss me like one one of of those side bitches.
0: There you go, everybody. That is Aaron Ruiz. Great production on this song. Now, you'll hear on the podcast how he talks about his voice, how he discovered his voice, and the music he really, really likes to write. Now, I got to tell you, going back to the first CD I produced with him, it is nothing like this. I think we would call it today Unplugged. What you just heard was all of his production. It's fantastic for me to see the growth and the changes over the years in his style and in his expression and his professionalism. You know, let's just go to the show. Here you go. This is Aaron Ruiz and I talking about his pivot points, his journey. We get into some of the deeper stuff about vulnerability. Here it
1: goes. Hey, there he is. There it is. How are you? I am doing good. I was just doing some weeding outside. (laughs) <laughs> ah, nice yeah today's like the first not i mean it's hot today but not oppressively hot really yeah
0: <laughs> that's supposed to be how. the fall we're in you know long sleeves and feeling like fall is around the corner
1: no it's hot it's hot outside
0: all right well dude welcome to the show i'm glad we're doing this i know we wanted to do this in person next week I no know, i know but is uh, that next week already oh
1: my gosh
0: yeah. I guess I guess it's coming up. <laughs> yeah. It's coming up because we're heading into October. Oh, maybe it's in 2 weeks. 2 weeks, that's what yeah. it is. Yeah. I'm I'm off I'm off a week. But I'm glad we're getting to do it now. It's interesting. So, everybody, I do know Aaron <laughs> from when Aaron was just a wee lad. Yeah. <laughs> At the time I lived in Stanford, Connecticut and then moved to Nashville and you were probably about 9 maybe. By the time yeah, I was in grade, grade school, yeah, I don't yeah. know, around that, yeah. Around that time. And then he and my daughter connected somewhere in the college age. I can't remember exactly the age. It's
1: when um, I got Facebook, when you could only get Facebook in college, you needed a college email to use it back then. And
0: then uh, I remember they connected. And, uh, dude, what is it like? 17 years later now, since the time you guys got connected?
1: Yeah. Is that 20 years? No, no. We've been married uh, 13 years, I think. Wow. But we've been together, I think, 15 years.
0: Yeah. So there you go. So Aaron is... My son-in-law married to my daughter, which is not the reason why he's on Pivot Point, and you would know that by. Oh, I thought that was this. This was the only <laughs> reason it would he'd be like a number ten or a number five. <laughs> you know, here we are, episode sixty six. Um, Aaron is a singer songwriter. He is also a producer, and that's why we're here. And um, so, but I want to go back because you know I remember you as a little kid. But I never knew you as a
1: musician as a little kid. So when did that start happening for you? Uh, as far back as I can remember, I my, my started taking piano lessons when I was about six, six or seven years old, probably like first grade. Wow. Okay. And my dad always was dinking around on the guitar. Like, Yeah. Around I remember that.
0: I remember your dad had, had a guitar.
1: And, you know, I got to give him credit because I, I don't really do this with my own kids, but... Uh, he usually had me like sing songs with him and stuff. And one of the, some of my first times ever doing music were at church uh-huh. when I was a little kid, you know, during the time when they take offering, they usually have people do little songs. And yeah. then i that's where, kind of the first time I ever started where I sang in front of people. And how old were you then? Probably like third grade, like, wow. you know, like a little kid, you know, oh, yeah. like, I was like a little kid, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> And I just kind of like singing songs. Like, I my dad would do it. with My dad, and it was it was just like a fun, but it wasn't anything I took very seriously. You know, you just yeah. did it. My dad's like, "You uh-huh. want to do this?" I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah.
0: okay, all right." Yeah, and and he played the guitar, and I would sing. When did it shift for you into something real?
1: Definitely in middle school. Oh yeah. When I I, I had like a very strong memory. Um, I always liked music. Mm-hmm. Um, I like. I really, really like listening to music. My parents always played music all the time, um, like always, constantly. But I didn't really connect. My parents had really gotten into kind of like the contemporary Christian music at the time. I and mean, my parent, my dad, loved the Beatles, and my mom mm-hmm. loved Donna Summers and a lot of that like Motown stuff. But they also played a lot of contemporary Christian music, and I was more interested in commercial music, like what was kind of coming out on the radio. What was cool. And I asked my parents once if I could do um, BMG. Mm-hmm. Do you remember what that is? Or Columbia House it was one of those where you um you can yeah. buy one album, you get eleven.
0: Yeah, you buy,
1: you sp- yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. I don't remember and um, I was like, oh, can I, can I do that? And they said, sure. You know, and I just didn't really know what I liked. Mm-hmm. I knew I liked alternative music, like rock music. I liked anything with a guitar. So I just kind of flipped through the magazine. I went to the alternative section and picked whatever was highest reviewed, and mm-hmm. just like albums like that um and that's where i really kind of learned that's where i got like nirvana Mm -hmm. stone table pilots um you know i remember i listened to like matchbox 20 at that time with like their first album um i got really into stone table pilots like a lot oh yeah and i remember playing this music and i like i don't know how to explain it but it was just like such an emotionally evoking moment like listening to some of this music like the I look at it now looking back and I'm like, yeah, it's just that these were like singers and songs that kind of were emotional and moved you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't know the lyrics. I didn't really, wasn't paying attention to that, but the, the whole vibe of it mm-hmm. sucked me. Um, and that whole alternative rock scene, Smashing Pumpkins, uh, you know, all that stuff that during that time when I was a kid, in 90s Bush, there was a band, I, I just loved it. I, mm-hmm. I, and I, then I asked my parents if I could start playing guitar and they were like, I won't buy you a guitar until you like show initiative that like, you're going to like do it. So my dad had this old classical guitar and I was like, uh. Uh-huh. but then I just practiced a ton because I wanted to get a, a real electric guitar. And it wasn't very hard because I, I, I mean, I loved it. Like, so it wasn't like work. Like once I got into learning how to play guitar, I was like, oh, man, I really I want to learn how to play. You know, you learn how to play like, you know, Led Zeppelin, like Mm -hmm. Stairway to Heaven. You learn all these songs. I learned how to play like all the Nirvana songs real quick. So yeah, from there, I just really like had a bug Mm. for music. Mm -hmm. It's kind of where like the bug started for me. So that was in like
0: middle school, junior high, seventh, eighth grade, playing in bands.
1: Did you start your band, have a band? How, How was that? I tried out, um, in middle school, I tried out for the jazz band. I was really into that. I didn't think I was good enough at all, mm-hmm. but they sent me the thing and I gave it to my guitar teacher and he's like, you could do this. He was like really encouraging. He's like, let's just practice it. And I practiced like crazy to learn. And I remember it was girl from Inpanema. <laughs> I was like classic. And then it, I, yeah. and the, you know the show, like the Perry Mason, Perry Mason show, it uh-huh. was the Perry Mason theme. The yeah. And, uh, I learned them inside out. Wow. I was like, I just practiced like crazy. And I was able to play in the jazz band. I learned all these chords and like all kinds of new stuff, mm. jazz band. Um, and then from there, yeah. And then I, I played in bands with, you know, a bunch of friends. I played with my friend, Andrew, who I'm still doing music with. We were friends then. Mm-hmm. And we were together and we all had the same guitar teacher. So we kind of had a little band where we played jazz standards or like blues songs like, you know, the 12-bar blues and just kind of like riffing and stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, I did all that up and through high school. Um, I started, I met a kid on my school bus that played guitar exceptionally well. It was very good. And we and him, me and him started getting together. His name was Pete. And um, we would just write songs. And it was a lot of fun. And I was really wanted to write original music. I wanted to write my own songs. And me and this guy, Pete, just started writing songs and we started a band. In high school and we you know and andrew i was like andrew mm-hmm. don't play with us and then we had another guy on the drums and um you know i think we sold like 300 albums in high school wow. we, like one of all the bands uh-huh. um we got a lot of like really a lot of praise from our friends our peers nice playing it was also very exciting sure and, especially when you're right when it was all your own music yeah and that was my first experience recording. We, we paid to get to an actual recording, mm-hmm. which was funny, which was, you know, <laughs> like you, it, it was something recorded. I don't know how much of a true recording experience it was. Yeah. But, uh-huh. And around that same time, my guitar teacher had let me borrow a, um, a four track Tascam. Oh, yeah. he lent it to me for like two weeks. And I was just blown away because... I couldn't believe I could like sing harmony, like I could like record myself and then re-record myself, add guitar dubs, and it was just kind of this eye-opening thing. Um, but yeah, after that, high school did all that stuff, went to college, and then in the summers during college, Andrew and I were were very connected, even though we were living very far apart. Mm. Uh, we would communicate online, send each other music, things we were into, kind of stuff we liked. Chat. We was like we were chatting on AIM on the aol instant messenger mm-hmm. back, and back and we would send each other mp3s like back and forth and we were you know heavily illegally downloading all kinds of mp3s from all over the place right um but uh yeah and then in the summers andrew got a laptop and an interface and we started recording original songs again so this is house. in college now yeah in college we started going to i would go to his house in the summer and he had a little road mt1 microphone and a little task scam and a In a laptop. And then um, I grabbed an SM58 from the church I was working at, and we were just like recording stuff. Mm. And it was a ton of fun. I was like, oh, this is really cool.
0: So he went to a different college than you. Mm -hmm. Did either of you study music in college? Like, I thought you went to college for communications. Is that right?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I initially went to college thinking I was going to be a pastor, I thought I was going to go into church ministry. Okay. Um, so at the time I was a double major, um, in, in theology and communication. I was like okay. both things. Um, and I what was
0: changed there.
1: Um, well, I had had all my internships at churches and I'd been doing worship music. I, I led a big, uh, like worship event. I was one of the leaders for a big worship event at my school that, um, I, you know, I was really into that and I thought, Oh, maybe I'll get into being like a worship pastor. Mm-hmm. That, take, take that route um, But you know the more I was doing it I just was not I didn't feel like I didn't have There was no really bad experience or anything that led to this I I just was like Oh you know I just don't feel like that's the direction For me
0: mm-hmm.
1: It just was like I don't know if that's the way I want to go um, And one of the main Things really is because as a musician I just Felt a little um, felt Like the church culture was just a little stifling mm-hmm. As for an artist and I, I kind of wanted to just have a little bit more freedom to kind of just explore how I felt about things and music and be able to do what I wanted to do without, uh, you know, kind of the, the baggage and other things that come with being immersed in that culture. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, it just didn't feel very uh, open to alternative artistic forms, you know? Sure. Yeah, yeah no, I get it. Uh, I'm just
0: really curious about, you know, how that was when we were younger, right? We think we have a direction. And I mean, I went to one college and ended up going to a different college and and went to a different direction. So I I understand. And there's stories behind that. And that's why I asked, I was just curious, what was going on on the inside for you as you decided, you know, I'm going to go and do this and this. And then I'm like, maybe I don't want to be a worship pastor, maybe I want to be an artist, or was it that clear? Did you say to yourself, oh, I want
1: to be an artist? How was that? Um, You know, I had been spending a lot of time in college kind of praying for direction. Mm -hmm. And I've always been someone who believed in prayer and like meditating and sitting in in that. Um, I spent a lot of time doing that. And it was in one of those moments, I just kept feeling like a push that's like, you know, just ministry is not for you. Like part of it is like I I could do it, but you need to head another, like you're heading in another direction. Mm -hmm. And I I felt that strongly. And really my life, in many ways, things would have been a lot easier if I just continued down the road of doing ministry, because that's kind of where everything was headed for me. I had a lot of opportunity Mm -hmm. there to keep doing that church stuff. Um, and I did, I mean, I ended up still serving as a pastor, you know, for church for many years as a youth pastor and associate pastor type thing. Um, but, uh, I just never felt like it was the thing that was going to be my career. And I just, it just, just like in my spirit, I don't know how to say it in my gut. It just felt like it wasn't the thing that was, Mm -hmm. that I was supposed to be going for, which was kind of surprising really. Mm. Tell me more about that. Yeah. I just thought that was what it was going to be. I thought it was being made more like so clear. I, I thought it was going to be like an obvious, like, Oh, this is the next step. Like, yeah, I've been offered internships. Like when I was a senior in college, I've been offered, um, you know, a job, like you know, Hey, come work here. Uh, and, um, I was just like, no, I don't think that's what I want to do. Like, I just, I didn't feel like that was the place I was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't regret it. I mean, I look back mm. and I'm like, I'm glad I didn't take that route. Uh, mm. I feel like I did make the right decision, but I did make a harder decision. Mm. Because. Yeah. Tell me why. Because pursuing music is difficult. <laughs> 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 it's a difficult road. <laughs> and really, you know, imagine you you. And one day I was like, oh, I could go out of college. I can leave college with the prospect of a career and a job. Mm-hmm. Or I can leave college with nothing. Mm-hmm. and try to, and then try to figure out how i'm going to pursue this thing because there's really no there's no like road there's no course there's nothing that kind of tells you okay you want to be a musician like you want to be an artist like here's what you want to do mm-hmm. and uh, here's what you have to do here's the first thing you got to do so i kind of had to figure that out myself mm. uh, and, it, and i did i knew i wanted to be an artist in the sense that like i wanted to write my own music Mm-hmm. that's what I wanted to do and kind of have a voice in that. Uh, Once you
0: graduated, what was the next step for you? I remember that you were working as a youth pastor, but at the same time you and Andrew were writing songs. Did you feel, ever feel like you're never going to get there because you're working as a youth pastor and it takes a lot of your time? how was this transition? Let's talk a little bit about that from the perspective of, you know, the inside, what you
1: were thinking and what, what you were feeling. Well, I think I I was thinking about this, you know, your podcast is called pivot point. And I'm like, man, I've had a bunch of pivot points. Mm -hmm. One of the first ones being leaving college, choosing to do something vastly different than what I went into college. Mm -hmm. Assuming Um, when I came home, the first thing I need, knew I needed to do was get a job. And, and luckily, my parents were like, hey, the, my, they were like, yeah, we are excited for you to pursue this. You just have to work. Mm-hmm. Like, and, you know, you, we don't want to see you sitting around, you know, like being lazy right? or like, do you, you know, we want to make sure you're, you're pursuing this, um, which I'm naturally already crazy with things anyway. So, like, I would work. Mm-hmm. So, I got a job at Borders Bookstore. Andrew and I had discussed our senior college to go back that we were going to pursue this together. Mm. So we decided we both went home to live with our parents. I got the job at Borders, and I was like, "Hey, my buddy needs a job." So Andrew got a job at Borders too, and <laughs> we both worked right. there. Uh huh. And um, for me, I was like, "All right, I got to treat music like a second job. I've got to like be really disciplined about this."
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So one of the things I did. With Andrew, we decided that we'd have our, we had, we s- had the same day off of mm-hmm. work. So we would work from nine in the morning till six at night that day, all day on music. Mm-hmm. What did that look like? We didn't know what the heck we we're doing. We're like, well, I guess we'll write songs. Like, uh-huh. right. <laughs> and yeah. on all my free time, like on my lunch breaks and borders and stuff, I would just be reading and writing. I'd be like, just trying to like, think of songs. hmm and then the next thing I knew I needed to do was figure out how to record an album. It was like, first I need songs. Then I need to figure out how to record an album. I had no idea how to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like, that's kind of where you came into the story randomly because Carla mm-hmm. and I had been talking and I didn't really know. I didn't know what I, I, my mom had mentioned, she's like, Oh yeah, you know, Joseph was in the film industry. I was like, Oh cool. Like I didn't know anything about mm-hmm. what exactly you had done. I just remember you had a mustache.
0: <laughs> yeah, just was what a, a memory to have!
1: I don't know anything
0: about that guy. He just had a mustache.
1: I'm like, he looked like a guy out of like an '80s Boston hockey like hockey card. Yeah, like a well, hockey. That's pretty much it.
0: <laughs> that would sum it up quite nicely.
1: But um yeah, I mean, so I was just for me, it was about. I have to write songs and just try to interact with as many people as I can that might know anything about this industry. I know mm. nothing about it. Mm. And, you know, things on the internet weren't exactly what they are now. Like yeah. the kind of research you could do. Um, this is 2004, four, five. you know? Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, then, uh, you know, between talking to Carla and I started talking to you and you said you were interested in um, producing some music. And I was like, sure. Mm-hmm. And um, so, I mean, I could tell the right. Want me to tell the story? So, Andrew and I, you guys, Andrew and I came to Nashville and stayed at your house for like a month. Was it that long? Yeah, yeah.
0: (laughs) Wow, it was that long. long? So, uh, I can sum it up. Uh, I'll sum it up from my point of view. I'd love to hear your point of view. So, yeah, when the guys came, I think before you came, we picked the songs that we wanted to do. We had a studio in Nashville. We had uh, we had a drummer that uh, David Terry was very helpful. He engineered it for us. And it was a process because we needed to make arrangements of every song. Some songs were pretty fresh for you guys. And also getting your playing together. I'll say just mm-hmm. kind of work the chops up a little bit and get the vocals together. And I remember... Um, a friend of mine at the time, Michael Mellett, who uh, is really a great vocalist, came in and was coaching and helping. And for me, the experience was more like um, get it done and also give you some exposure to some professionals who are doing it all the time. Just so that your takeaway is not just having an album, but an experience. Yeah. So that's that's kind of my My look back on it. What's yours? I forgot it was a month. Holy cows.
1: Um, Yeah. I mean, it's funny now because I produce music a lot with a lot of people, different skill levels. Um, Andrew and I've talked about this and we're like, man, you know, you guys were extraordinarily patient with us (laughs) considering when, you know, looking back, I just, all I think about is how ill prepared I was for that experience. Mm. Uh, You think one thing, but, you know, you think you're pretty good mm-hmm. and then you go to Nashville and you're like, Oh, I, I have to step up yeah. a lot. Yeah, And, you know, again, I think, I, I think if, if you believe you can do it, you'll get through it. And like, mm-hmm. in some ways I'm like, I had no business being there, but in other ways it's like, how are you going to learn if you're not there? Exactly. Right. <laughs> yes. Exactly. So, um, I, yeah, I mean, from songwriting needed work, couldn't play on time needed work singing needed work i mean just basic arrangement it all needed work and you guys made it work yeah. <laughs> but it took a hell of a long time to do it all yeah. <laughs> just because of how inexperienced we were but i'll tell you leaving after that month was sh- like it was it was it altered everything about yeah. how we saw how we saw the whole process and we, it changed us because we were like, wow, this is so much different than what we thought. And we really have to step up here, 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 mm. to level up, to to get the quality we're looking for out of ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know? um, and how did, how did you guys do that? Um, well, the first thing I started doing was practicing all the time to a metronome. Uh-huh. Yeah. Or to a drum beat, or something like yeah, that—something yeah. in rhythm, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the, the next thing that was very interesting was about um, songwriting and what works production-wise. And all you know when you listen to music a lot, you love music. You don't really, you really aren't hearing what's making things sound bigger or smaller. Mm -hmm. You think you know, but you don't know when you're first listening. So, for a long time, you know, what I thought were the things that blew up a chorus or made something sound interesting, I thought it was just like things being louder Mm -hmm. or things being distorted. But it's more than that. And you start seeing kind of like what production is and what makes a song move and why does a song feel good um that process you know changed how i wrote song it like changed my songwriting because i, I was like oh like all this time i've been writing songs just banging on a, a guitar mm-hmm. but when i started thinking about it more as a whole composition with all the instruments you could really begin to uh write better you just write better, mm-hmm. and you really see how melody works better when you're writing, especially when you <laughs> when you're when you start writing songs in actual time,
0: mm-hmm.
1: things you start figuring out like oh, like if I sing this way here and I sing this way here, it really gives the lift or mm-hmm. it, it really sells the emotion better. Um, so you're talking you know, think, about form, yeah, form, structure, mm-hmm. uh, all that stuff. You don't really see you are recording yourself is like a naked experience. You yeah. start hearing what you did played right back to you. And you're like, that's not how I thought it sounded in my head. It sounds worse. <laughs> <Yes. horrible." laughs>
0: I could totally relate. That's, that's the writing process, isn't it? You yeah. know, you start off until you really learn these techniques that you hear in your head. Oh, I want it to be this. And you start writing something and then you hear it back. It's like, Oh, that's not that. Mm. Earlier on. That happened a lot. That's how you learn. What am I not doing that's going to give me the sound that I'm hearing in my head? Which is always, I find the challenge. How do you get the stuff that's in your head out, replicated back at you?
1: Do you feel the same way in that? Yeah. I mean, not so much anymore, but at that time, yeah. And I think that's why Andrew and I, after we left that experience, we decided again (laughs) without really knowing we were getting into we're like let's just record our next album ourselves Mm -hmm. so we can figure that figure this out that's kind of what started us getting into producing really Mm -hmm. well did you
0: ever think this is just not going to work
1: um yeah i think er, i think early on you're far more optimistic that like all right i'm just starting out like of course it's not working now like yeah Later on when things get hard it's like oh man like is this you know what's going on and plus I kind of have this perspective I call myself a struggling optimist uh-huh. so I like I, I struggle to see the world in a very uh, bright light because I understand that the world's very difficult actually working in churches for so many years being with people in some of the worst moments of their life you really see and and begin to understand just how unfair mm-hmm. the world is mm-hmm. and it it doesn't discriminate no, you know, with anybody. And uh, um, so with that, it's a little side note. But um, so I was always like, you know, I want to pursue this. I want to take it very seriously. I want to treat it like a real job, mm. even though I'm not making any money doing it yet. But I also understand that not everything works out.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I, I'm like, and sometimes you got to remember, am I going to be okay with that? If that happens to me in the future, <laughs> you know, tell me more about that. I, I just, you know how sometimes I'll, I'll hear like motivational speakers or people say, you know, you, you'll never, you gotta believe it a hundred percent. Like you gotta believe like, like if you're never going to achieve, if you don't really believe that you can make it happen. And I believe that I'm capable of doing what I'm doing. And I, I believe I could be successful. I'm doing. And what I also understand alongside that is that nothing is owed to me and nothing is really truly guaranteed. So as I've gotten older, I've learned to maybe hold on to this a little lighter,
0: mm-hmm.
1: like a little with a little less of a tight grip. Because so much of it becomes a mesh in, in your care, in your personality, and in your and what you how you value yourself. Mm. That it can it can be very dangerous if if things aren't going the way you want them to go. You kind of become you become problematic in your thinking.
0: Mm.
1: Tell me about that. What was problematic in your thinking? So much of your value is derived from your success or lack of success mm-hmm. by your accomplishments or lack of them. Right. And um, that's not a good way to really look at yourself. And I, I spent a lot of, when I was in therapy, I learned a lot about this and I realized I had a lot of negative self-talk. You know, I, I didn't realize this. I never would have thought of myself as like an artist type Mm-hmm. But um, I'm like, wow, I have a lot of these characteristics and I really like, I really struggle to see myself in a positive way. Mm-hmm. And I really mm-hmm. struggle to um, be okay as much as I want to be okay with how the cards land. Yeah. I want them to land. I want the way I want them to. Land. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> Which, I guess it's like <laughs> control. It's just controlling you're, you're controlling, you know,
0: I think that's human nature. I mean, I can totally relate to that statement. It's like, oh yeah, I, I will release how the cards will fall as long as they fall the way I
1: want them to. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and that's, that's a hard thing, man. It, it's tough. And you get, yeah. very, you get very depressed doing this stuff mm-hmm. because so much of what you do, and I don't know if it's like this for everybody in every career. I don't know how many people find value... Um, I I know it's not true. I I don't think nearly as many, I don't think everybody finds their self-worth in their career. Mm. Um, Sometimes as artists, it's hard. I think it's hard to separate what you create from yourself. Wow. How do you separate what you
0: create from yourself?
1: Uh, (laughs) I don't know if I have an answer to this. Sometimes I'm thinking when I, when I, when I get into those cycles of thinking, I remember that, uh, I don't have to take myself so seriously mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm just creating a thing mm-hmm. and putting it out there and I will create a new thing tomorrow. Mm-hmm. It's okay. If it's not like that, it's okay. If you know, I, it, it's okay. If it's not, it doesn't end up the way received the way I want it to be. Um, it's okay. Cause that's not who I am. And there's other things in my life and I've really tried to find to, to, to highlight the other things in my life that are important. Because this isn't the only thing, Mm but oftentimes, and I don't know if everybody feels this way. This is how I feel, especially early on when I was like pushing hard to make this thing a thing. I was, I'm using, I was obsessed and I'm using the word obsessed really truly meaning that it is all I thought about and did. Yeah. I could say that I remember that
0: stage for you. Yeah, yeah, and even and I, so much so. You're hardworking for sure. I don't know if I'd say obsessed, but only you can say that about yourself. I think, but I would say that you worked it, man. You worked it.
1: Yeah, and, but and I say it because, like, even in you know, with Carlo being married, like that was one of the early on arguments or issues that we had is that I was just like mm-hmm. any free I had, just trying to figure out that, writing songs, reading, trying to like research something. I just always needed to be doing something that was pushing me in a direction. I didn't feel like I was being productive if I wasn't
0: always pursuing that. Yeah, I can relate to that. And I still have to watch that for myself, because there is fear. If we roll it all back, there's fear back there. That's what drives that bus. It's hard to get off the fear bus. I mean, in some ways it's simple, right? You just get off. And other ways, the fear bus is so crafty, so sneaky, and yeah. so personal that y- y- you don't recognize that you're on it until you're on it. <laughs> then you kind of figure out, oh, how do I get back off of this again? Yeah, and again and again. So let me circle back. I want to explore a little bit about what you said when you said that you're not what you create. Because it is part of who you are. There is a part of you that you, what you create. But I I think I understand that you're saying it doesn't 100% define you. And yet, by participating in that creativity, there is a part of you that is there now for everybody to see and hear. So there is a bit of a definition of who you are there. And so I just wonder, is it all or nothing? Is there a way to find a balance of this is a part of who I am and have an acceptance of it? And stay, and this is the B part to it, and and that is staying in the process of that creativity and not always looking for the end goal. Because I think what defines us is the end goal. I've achieved this award or this much money. And that defines us. What I'm describing, do you think that relates to you?
1: Um, To go back... I, I would say placing your worth in anything exterior mm-hmm. is going to be problematic for you, I think. Well, for me, I mean, because that's not you. You think you're, like, treating that like you. I mean, even in, in one of the most, like, even with, like, my children, like, I have a, you have a kid. Like, that kid is not me. And if mm-hmm. I expect them to be and act like me, and if, and if they're failures... I take on that's going to hurt me, but that's not who I am. That's who they are. Right. Mm -hmm. I don't know if this is a good analogy, but anytime we think that there's worth in in what we do and not just in who we are, I Mm -hmm. think it's just going to be problematic. I would have said something very different a long time ago, Mm. but um, we put things out and they're just not going to be, they're not going to be received in the ways we hope maybe that they are, maybe they will. Mm-hmm. Maybe sometimes they are, and they're received great, and then sometimes they're not. At the end of the day, you're going to be left hinging your whole emotional world on whether what you put there is valued or devalued.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I just don't know if that's a good way. I, I, don't, I don't think that's a good way to be living mm-hmm. my life. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, you are putting your heart and soul in something, and it's important to you. But you also, and I'm trying to do is just release it and like, that's it. And maybe someone will like it. Maybe people will hate it immensely. I just can't let it be attached to me in a way anymore that continues to bring me down. That's really well said. And I found me, even if, it, even if it's received well, it doesn't make me feel better anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Cause it's just, I want to do the next thing. You know what I mean? And I don't know if everybody feels that way. That's just how, that's definitely how I feel.
0: Yeah. We have no control over who gets lifted up and who doesn't. What we have that control of is what do we want to say? And can we, can we still keep the lights on while we're going through that process?
1: Yeah. What do we want to say? I think that's more ends up becoming more important. Um, because it's the whole industry is kind of fickle about what it likes and dislikes. Mm-hmm. And, and I won't take the credit for that. I mean, my, when I was in therapy, one of the things that I had mentioned to my therapist was like, I want to be, I should have been here by the time I was this age or this, should I, I should have achieved this maybe by the time I was this age. And, you know, he cautioned me that that was a dangerous way to look at life. Like, how could you ever say you're going to achieve this by this age? Or do this by this age. You know, it's kind of like people are like, I want to be married by 20, whatever. I want to have a kid by this age. I want to, blah, blah, blah. It's, it, he goes, What control do you have of that? Mm. You can try to do things, but really it's out of your control. And a lot of that is, is is terrifying, but freeing because I'm like, You know, I'm just doing what I, the best I can do with what I have now. And when I start, just produce like thinking that I'm just gonna give the best I have and, and not be so concerned about how it's received. I mean, you try your best to be received well, obviously, but when when my whole identity isn't tied into how things are received, I just feel a little bit freer. I feel better. Yeah. I don't hate myself. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And well, like hate- even piggybacking on what you said, it was kind of funny. I I spoke at like a panel recently with these high school kids and um someone had asked. Andrew and I, what was our most successful song? And I was, I thought about that because I'm like, well, yeah, what is it? What does that mean? Like successful? I'm like, you mean that like the one that made us the most money, mm. right? Because that really feels like the only way you can gauge success. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know. It kind of was like oh, a question that threw me off because I was, I was like, well, successful to me are like a song that I wrote that I think is my best song, but is it, is that my most successful song or is it the one that made, made me the most money or got mm. a big placement or something, mm. you know? Mm. Um, so I, yeah, it's, you're always kind of finding the balance between like making art and, um, and, um, you know, ser- serving the commerce side of it, like yeah. art and commerce, like kind of make, putting them together and figuring out how you can be true to the one while still making a couple of bucks
0: mm-hmm no <laughs> it's hard to figure out how to be true to your your creativity in the process and i guess respect the commerce like you're saying i don't know if i have an answer to that i actually i here's here's my answer and i don't know if this would apply to you my answer is i try not to think about the commerce side so much because it it's like a, a black hole and i can't find my way to the other end. <laughs> so, I just think I'll, I'll just keep on writing. Just keep on doing stuff and then see what happens, which seems so irresponsibility on this other part of my, of my being.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and that is such a trap. And I don't know how to really break from that, to be honest. I don't know if you've, you've succeeded in breaking out of that feeling of irresponsibility.
1: You do feel pressure to take on more financially viable gigs. Mm. even if you're not super into it. For, I, I have found that for me, I have, I have to balance artistic stuff with commercial stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, like So I need to make sure I have set aside time for me to do what I want to do and then also set aside time to just do. And then I feel just more refreshed to kind of tackle things that aren't necessarily, you know, heart things, but things that I, you know, could still make well and understand Mm -hmm. that they serve another purpose and that's okay. Mm -hmm. Someone, Mm -hmm. I, I don't know who said this quote or somebody said this to me, but it's like, you know, it's not like you're selling out, but you're just buying in. Like you're buying into what this, to succeed, you need to buy in a little bit. Mm Mm-hmm what's needed i i think so you try to be flexible i try to be flexible with those things yeah until it's until i, re- I start seeing that it's like affecting me emotionally <laughs> tell me more <laughs> so, about that yeah, there's a while i felt like all i was i was just tackling every single gig mm-hmm. that came in my way and not that i was necessarily passionate about it or saw you know not not that it was something that really was exciting to me, but it was something I was just like, well, I just like being needed Mm -hmm. or, you know, just, or, or just appreciate getting a gig. Let's just do everything. And, um, I found that I've needed, that's another pivot point for me. So I just kind of needed to like step aside from some of that stuff and really focus on the things that satisfied me internally. Mm. And when I did that, I I felt like I I just had more, uh, bandwidth to kind of tackle things that didn't necessarily fuel me in the same way. And that's kind of the balance I've been trying to keep in my life Mm -hmm. now. Do you
0: work against looking to futures? Let me see if I can rephrase that. Do you think about how your thinking process is and trying to stay in the present and not think too much into the future? Like, I've been doing this process that you've been doing let's just say and I've been doing it for five years and have I progressed anywhere like your measuring stick or have you thrown that personal measuring stick away when it comes to status and commercialism and finances or does that still stick around and be a mirror to how you value what you're doing with your time
1: yeah, that's still. I mean, that still definitely creeps up. You still kind of feel like, "Am I behind?" Yeah. Okay. You know, or like, "Am I? Am I not where I'm supposed to be?" Uh, or, or yeah, "Am I? Have I accomplished what I set out to do?" And am I? Am I? Am I behind? Am I getting too old? Am I out of touch? Am I? Mm. You know, you you think of it. Those things come definitely come and go. Um, I try though. I struggle because I've always lived in the future, mm-hmm. like always thinking about the future. And like, you know, what's going to happen here? What's going to happen? Like, you know, another time when I was in therapy, I was taught how to like identify bad cycles when you're thinking about things. And one, there's one thing that they called fortune telling. (laughs) That's not good. (laughs) Good label. Yeah. And it's kind of basically just um, forecasting your own future with no true evidence about, right? Like you just start forecasting like. like i'm gonna fail and then i'm gonna be broke i'm gonna be poor i'm living on the streets and you like catastrophize so that this is another one you just kind of continue going down and um you know you sit there and it's like it's like is that true like is that really gonna happen like and you're you're telling yourself a story based on no evidence right dude Dude.
0: (laughs) what okay people you can't see that i'm laughing and i'm trying to be quiet because i'm not laughing at Aaron I'm laughing with him truly in the truest way because he could have jumped into my brain and I could have, and just reading my script <laughs> cuz I I get it I I still do that and I have to talk myself off the ledge or Kristen has to help me like you know is I love that question is it true yeah is that true yeah
1: and I don't think there's any way of escaping him. I and mean, you can learn ways to cope. It, what's what's really been huge. It's not that that I stop thinking that way. It's just that I recognize the toxicity of thinking that way. Mm-hmm. And if I can keep on it, then you, you know, it's just like, oh, that's not a good way. It's it's not. that I'm like, I shouldn't be seeing the world that way. Like that's not true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, trying not to live in that world and trying to really take in the present and just focus on, you know, and this is things I've learned, you know, over the last, I would say three to five years. It's just like dig into yourself and like, just make things Mm -hmm. and and put them out and do, do your diligence and figuring out how to make that work for you financially, artistically. But, um, I'm trying to focus more on writing from my, my gut, like my heart, like what I, what I want. And for a long time I was writing to figure out how to sell something. Yeah. Yeah, um, I get that. And you know, as an artist, I'm sure you you experience this too. It's like starting out, like the album I did with you, it sounds nothing like the music I make now. Yeah, and and it's just you kind of have an evolution. And really, the hardest part is finding your voice. It took yeah. years to kind of find that voice as to what I wanted to say and be musically.
0: Mm. How was that process? Was it? Would you be able to say that? The more you knew yourself and the more honest you would be with yourself, is that how your voice became evident? How was that process for you?
1: I mean, I think it's two things. Uh, There's a technical aspect to it was learning how to produce music Mm -hmm. kind of helped me to figure out how to make things that sounded the way I heard. Mm -hmm. Uh, I had a lot of musical influences, and that's kind of like starting early on. You kind of write songs in a vast array of ways. Cause you're like, Oh, I like this thing. And I like this thing. And you're kind of piecing all these things together. You're kind of reverse engineering
0: mm-hmm.
1: a lot of music. You like, as I kept making music and Andrew and I kept making albums, we were like, well, we really like this. we really like this. And after a while, we're like, yeah, this stuff just doesn't feel like us. Like, and then we just kept writing. And I remember at one point, right before we moved to Nashville, we kind of were like, we want to make something different, like a different voice. Like, Mm-hmm. Different thing, and um, I also kind of was coming more out of my shell. Like I wanted to be a little bit more, just uh, not what's the word um, vulnerable. a little bit more vulnerable. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to be more vulnerable, and I was really challenging myself to do that more. And I I had been reading uh, James Baldwin. Are you familiar with James Baldwin? Oh yeah. Um, and uh, I'd read s- some of his. R- Tips on writings. But one of the things he had mentioned was about like seeing the world as it is, like the responsibility of the artist is, you know, it's, it's like seeing the world as it is, not as you want it to be. Mm. And for, for a long time, I was just like writing songs, you know, you want to be positive, but you're kind of like spitting a positive light. But I'm like, that's not really how I see the world. Mm. That's not really how I see things. Like, really, I'm kind of like frustrated and stuff. I started for the first time, like using songwriting as a way to be. A little bit more aggressive and share my grievances. So I just share how I felt things I would never really say to anybody. Mm-hmm. To kind of like, because I know, because I understand decorum. I understand how to be, you know, I worked right. at a church, like <laughs> yeah, you know, like how to not piss people off, like right. and, and just like <laughs> right. You can yeah. deal with people saying the craziest shit to you, and you just got to be like, oh wow, that's wow, you yeah. know, yeah, it, and but in real life, like as writing, I was like, you know, I want to use writing as my way to speak. And that really was like a game changer for me. Mm. Like I I felt like to kind Mm. of just be like, this is what I want to say. This is what I want to do. And this, this whole process of writing changed for me. And then, you know, just keeping some of the things I've learned. I love, I mean, I've always listened to old music and I love, I appreciate like the greats, like, Mm. you know, songwriters and, I love like Michael Jackson. I've mm-hmm. gotten really into like Prince and mm-hmm. other Beatles and, you know, some of these people who wrote just some of the biggest hit songs. I really just like listen to that music and I'm like, what made this a big song? Why is this so popular? You know, what, what about this? It's emotionally attractive. I was listening to like Fleetwood Mac's Rumors, you know, and you're like, wow, people love this album. It still holds up. I'm like, it has all these things that are great about it. Mm-hmm. And what would you say
0: those things are in, in a, a not in a technical way or a or a musicianship way, but more of an emotional way? What would you attribute to it? What are your thoughts there?
1: In an intellectual way, what I do understand is that music itself, the beats and rhythms and stuff, are probably one of the first things that like attract people. I read you ever read that book, This Is Your Brain on Music? Mm-hmm. That guy, he talks about that, like you know, music before lyrics always. Like that's always kind of what sucks you into a sound, like in your brain. Like you, li- you like the rhythm, the beat, but um, you find that like a lot of big songs, a lot of artists that have had big songs, there's, there's just like a level of vulnerability to it, and they're saying so Not everybody. I mean, there are definitely your pop songs. Where you're like, what are they talking about? Mm-hmm. Even, but, but there are other songs that just have like a strong message that are saying something. Um, You know, I always think about like John Lennon's Imagine, which is like Mm -hmm. the song, which what they said, I guess he said it was like the Communist Manifesto. Mm -hmm. But but in another way, it could be taken as a song about everybody coming together. Mm -hmm. Imagine all the people, you know, being close. Um, But I really got into rap music when I was in college. And one of the first things that drew me into rap music was just the authenticity, the lyrics. Mm -hmm. Talking about the a perspective of their world their life where they're at which i wasn't really didn't feel like i was getting in a lot of like the alternative rock music i was listening to
0: mm-hmm.
1: it's just like a whole different thing and i i noticed that in a lot of big hit songs i'm trying i'm blanking off the top of my head but there is a level of just like this is my story yeah i'm telling it here um with a great melody of course like and all the other things have to be there Mm-hmm. but the lyrics are songs that make kind of make songs really connect over and over, you know, you hear people singing them all, you know, for forever, because they just, they, they say something that you couldn't have said yourself.
0: Yeah. And you can relate to it and it becomes true for you. I, I hear you. And to be able to play the stuff that's in you and other people connect with, I think that's fun, but it doesn't have to be, what defines us? No. What, what defines us is... I'm going to quote from Quincy Jones's book. It's got to move you first before you think it can move anybody else. And if it doesn't move you, it's not going to move anybody else. And that has always stayed with me as a litmus test for me. That if I'm not moved by the stuff I'm doing... <laughs> <laughs> i gotta i gotta shelve it man just get it out of your system and move on to the next thing you know
1: that's a great quote though because I've, I've actually been thinking about that writing songs is like it's like if i'm not feeling this the thing i made If i'm not if it doesn't when i turn it back on the next day and i'm not like oh yeah yeah you know and and that's a learned skill too because i think when i was first starting everything sounded great to me oh I sure yeah because it's it cool that you did it. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. 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 You're like, "Oh yeah, I made this thing. this sounds great. It's unbelievable." Yeah.
0: You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, tell me as we wrap up, is there um is there something that I missed in your journey that you'd like to share?
1: Well, I would say one of the big pivot points that we had as like Andrew and I as we were going from being musicians that played out a lot, mm. we did like a Minnie's Borders bookstore tour of the area. And we were playing colleges and stuff. Is um, we started seeing, well, I, by accident, really, I handed somebody the album we did mm-hmm. that I worked on a TV show at CBS. And we landed a bunch of placements on that show. And when Andrew and I recorded our own album, and it took us a year to do it in Andrew's parents' basement, we recorded 10 songs. They took that. And that was landing placements like crazy. That's great. Um, and then we, we got a second company to take a look at it. And we landed like 100 television placements. Wow. On
0: which from album? That, On that second album? On oh, that
1: God. second album. That is and, fantastic. And the one we produced ourselves in the house. And, we were, and uh, Andrew and I really, at that point, decided we need to look at this differently and learn how to produce well.
0: Hmm.
1: Because if we can make our own music and record... And get into this world, we can actually make a living doing this. Mm-hmm. And then after that, we worked with a, a pretty big producer here in Nashville, a guy named Brem Milligan, who was a really cool dude. Um, and um, we learned a ton from him. Um, and then we worked with another guy, um, guy named Chris Granger. Learned a ton from him. And another guy named Dustin Burnett. He goes by the name Zade Wolf, and he we learned a ton from him. And is every time we we would use our money to work with another producer it was just like education because neither of us have really formal education in music or producing but being with people that are professionals Mm. was just like schooling all of in itself you know Mm -hmm. and over that course it's been great and what's been great about nashville is that everybody's just really kind And, you know, you, you work with people and they're just like really open and they're open to talk and they're open to help you. And um, I've had nothing but like good experiences That's great, with people. Yeah. But but the big pivot point for us was learning how to record because I think we'd be sitting in a different place right now, be struggling mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. if we never spent the time to learn how to record music yeah. ourselves. Um, and at this point, I, I don't know, I would say that maybe for most people coming up, young people that um, it's a non-negotiable. Like you almost have to know how to record mm-hmm. or we'll set you apart. If you can get your stuff out by yourself, at least some good quality recordings out um, because uh, it just seems like everywhere we go, no one wants a demo. Yeah, They want, they want a pretty you know, well-produced song.
0: Yep. You have to become an engineer. You have to know how to produce to get your music heard because we the the imagination of, oh, I can just imagine how that song would sound is gone.
1: Yeah. They need, they need to hear how it's going to be. And that's a buddy of mine that was here when we first moved here with Sammy. He's like, he, told, he had told me, he's like, nobody wants demos. Like, mm-hmm. if you're going to work with artists, like, you just can't. It's no more the acoustic guitar demo. Like, mm-hmm. it's got to be a vision, a true vision of the song, like 80, 90%. I mean, now it's like, I think it needs to be pretty much there.
0: Yeah. Aaron, thank you for taking your time. This is a really interesting conversation. We touched on some deep things and I'm glad that we did. Uh, It's really interesting to hear about your journey and not just the pivot points, but the inner workings that come before and after those things, you know, that cause you to, make a shift in your life and cause you to frame how you think about how you want to progress in your creative life. And I really appreciate you being vulnerable and talking about it. So thank you, man.
1: Yeah. Edit me kindly.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That was such a funny line. The truth is I have to edit myself kindly. I'm always running on with these ideas. And thank goodness I get to edit them out. <laughs> what a great show. I'm really impressed with his ability to look at himself, to examine his thoughts, to work at how to how to really acknowledge some of that negative self-talk, which we all have, which we all have to work through. And as part of that vulnerability of being one who wants to express themselves so Aaron thanks for being on the show this was really great next week okay Bill Schnee is on the show Bill is internationally renowned you know who he is he's a producer he's an engineer he's a mix master he's received over 125 gold and platinum albums and more than 50 top 20 singles that's who's gonna be on the show Yeah, I can't wait to share his story with you. In the meantime, as always, take care of yourself and remember, if he's doing it, why
1: not you?